And turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We'll be reading verses 15 through 28 as Pastor Bruce continues in the series Living in the Last Days. This morning we're going to answer two questions concerning the Great Tribulation. And our text is Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Father, we come to you this morning and just ask that you would uh, just open our hearts and minds to to learn from your word. and Anoint Pastor Bruce with uh, the words to speak, uh, that he would be your, your messenger, your conveyor of, of, uh, of what you've laid on his heart. And open our hearts and minds to apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Kirk, as well, for leading us in our worship this morning. Appreciate that very, very much. Well, I trust most of you, perhaps all of you, had a great week this week, but I know in a crowd of this size, uh, there's probably a handful of people that did not have a great week. Maybe you had a bad day. You ever wonder, how do you know if you're having a bad day? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. In fact, you know you're having a bad day when you have to hitchhike to the bank to make your car payment. You know you're having a bad day when the Little League puts you on waivers. That one was for Zach. You know you're having a bad day when the moths in your money belt starve to death. Or when people send your wife sympathy cards on your anniversary. You really know you're having a bad day. Or when your pacemaker has only a 30-day guarantee. Or when the pest exterminator crawls under your house and he never comes out. You know you're having a bad day. Or a copy of your birth certificate comes in the mail marked null and void. Or your children's school calls to surrender. You know you're having a bad day. I hope I don't get that phone call. You know you're having a bad day when your birthday cake collapses from the weight of the candles. Or your income tax refund check bounces. It's a bad day. Or it costs more to fill up your car than it did to buy it. Or you put both contacts in the same eye. You know you're having a bad day when your doctor tells you that you're allergic to chocolate. That's a bad day. Or you wake up and discover your waterbed broke, and then you realize, I don't have a waterbed. <laughs> That's a bad day. 
That's a bad day. But folks, listen, that will be nothing compared to what people will experience in the last days during the tribulation period. You know, most people dream of a better day. They dream of a better future and even a better life. People dream of a time of peace among the nations. They look forward to economic stability. They dream of financial security, a time of relational harmony. But what we're going to see this morning as we continue in our series on the second coming of Christ is we're going to see that things will become much worse before they become much better. In fact, people are going to face a day that is going to be more earth-shattering than any ever experienced before. Notice what Jesus predicted again in Matthew 24, verse 21. He said, For then there will be what? Great tribulation. You say, how great will that tribulation be? Such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. This great tribulation that Jesus is talking about will encompass the entire world, and yet it will focus on the people and the nation of Israel. That's the bad news. The good news is that the tribulation will soon be followed by the second coming of Jesus Christ when He will return and establish His kingdom here on earth. That's the good news. And we look forward to that good news. We look forward to that day when Jesus returns. Now, with all this in mind, we come to Matthew 24 again, as we have in this series for the last few weeks. And last week, you may remember, if you were here, we learned about six signs of the second coming that are really signs of the last days in which we are even currently living now. In fact, Jesus said these signs would be like birth pains, which would increase in tempo, increase in intensity as we approach the end of the age. Jesus now predicts one crucial sign of the second coming that involves a person. It involves an event, and it involves a place, or a particular place, if you will. When this event happens, the coming of Christ is near. It is at hand. And so our focus today is on the Great Tribulation. It's also on a person who is commonly known or commonly called the Antichrist. A name you're familiar with. And in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28, our passage that Zach read for us, Jesus speaks in some very somber language about this great tribulation that is coming at the end of the age. Just before Jesus returns, the Bible also tells us that a world ruler will arise who with arrogance unmatched in history, he will take a step that plunges the world into a time of distress unlike anything yet ever seen on earth. And of course, that world ruler is called the Antichrist. And you may be wondering, well, who is this guy? Who is the Antichrist? We all want to know the answer to that question. Well, we don't know who exactly he is. Although there have been many in the past who had labeled many different people as the Antichrist and thought they were the Antichrist. But what we do know is we have a brief description of what he is like from Scripture. So let me give you a summary of what the Antichrist will be like. He is a man who will appear on, 
on the world scene in the last days, right before the return of Christ to the earth. He will be the incarnation of evil, cleverly disguised as a dynamic, charismatic, visionary leader who will astound the world with his solutions to humanity's problems. He will rise to power as a popular, persuasive, well-liked leader who will, in a sense, promote a one-world religion, one-world economy, and a one-world government. He will declare himself as a, quote, man of peace. But later, he will plunge the world into war. He will be opposed to Jesus Christ. And he will offer himself to the world as, quote, the Savior of humanity. He will force his followers to receive the mark on their hand or on their foreheads. And those who don't receive this mark will be persecuted. In fact, the Bible tells us that many will even be killed. And so for a short period of time, he will become the most powerful man on earth. And at the apex of his power, he will launch an all-out attack on Jesus Christ at a place called Megiddo in the Valley of Jezreel in Israel. And of course, that battle is known as the Battle of Armageddon. His reign of terror will come to a sudden end, though, when he is destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ as he returns to the earth to set up his kingdom. But before all this happens, before the Lord destroys the Antichrist and sets up his kingdom, the great tribulation will come. In other words, before things get better, things will get much, much worse. So let's answer two questions this morning, two simple questions about this great tribulation that Jesus predicts in Matthew 24. The first question we want to answer is, what will be the sign of the great tribulation? What will be the sign of this great tribulation? We saw last week that in verses 4 through 14, Jesus talks about a time of tribulation. But in verse 21, he talks about this great tribulation. And in verse 15... Jesus mentions one of the most significant events that will signal the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Look what he says in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about of this abomination of desolation? Well, let's take this verse phrase by phrase and see if we can't get a handle on it a little bit. And then we'll look at, in particular, this phrase, the abomination of desolation, and discover its meaning. The phrase, when you see, simply means that whatever Jesus is talking about will be a very public and visible event. It will be so obvious that no one can miss it. And then the phrase standing in the holy place is a reference to the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Some commentators or scholars believe it can even refer to just the holy city of Jerusalem itself. Others in particular believe it's a reference to the temple itself or even the holy of holies in the temple. The phrase uh, or, or the, the word abomination speaks of something that is disgusting, just as you think it would be. Something that is repulsive, detestable, and utterly abhorrent to God. And the word desolation, it, it refers to barrenness or laying waste. And then Jesus uses this phrase spoken of by Daniel the prophet. 
And that simply takes us back all the way to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 27, when Daniel made reference and made a prediction about the abomination of desolation. And then Jesus has this parenthetical phrase where he says, whoever reads, let him understand. And that basically means this. Here's something important, and you need to pay attention to it. Here's something important, and you need to ponder it, meditate on it, contemplate it, understand its meaning. Now, since the abomination of desolation is the turning point in the seven-year period of tribulation, it's what triggers the great tribulation. It's the sign, if you will, of the great tribulation. Let's examine that phrase a little more closely. So notice the meaning of the abomination of desolation. The meaning. What is it? What does it mean? What is this abomination of desolation? Well, you notice in your notes there, it is a person who stands in the temple to defile it. So first of all, it's a person who stands in the temple with the goal of defiling it, but more than that, to defy God himself. So he's standing in the temple to defy God. And how does he do that? By setting himself up as God. The abomination of desolation, it refers to a deliberate act of profaning God in his temple. It is an act of outrageous sacrilege done deliberately, done publicly, that will cause the godly to desert the temple. In fact, Jesus goes on in the next verse and says, it will even cause some to flee the city of Jerusalem. It will be such an abomination of desolation there. Now, who is this abomination of desolation? Well, I have this in your notes. You can notice it there. A couple of points, actually three points. After Daniel first made this prediction... There was a partial fulfillment in 167 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes erected an altar to the pagan Greek Zod Zeus over the altar of burnt offering and sacrificed a pig on it and then forced the Jewish priest to eat the pig meat. For that fact alone, he often is called the Antichrist of the Old Testament. So you have a partial fulfillment by Daniel here in 167 B.C. Number two, after Jesus repeated this prediction, there was another partial fulfillment in 70 A.D. when the armies of the Roman Emperor Titus defiled the temple and ultimately destroyed it. This happened at the same time they laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed the city of Jerusalem as well. But the ultimate fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24 will be in the future at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation when the Antichrist will declare that he is God in the temple and demand that people worship him. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this scene in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 4. He says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, who is this man of lawlessness? It's a reference to the Antichrist, is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and he will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. The Antichrist, in essence, will set himself up in the temple in Jerusalem... 
He will claim to be God and He will demand that the entire world worships Him. Those who worship Him will be given what is known in Revelation as the mark of the beast. And those who refuse the mark of the beast will be persecuted and many will be killed as well. So the abomination of desolation, Jesus says, will be the single most important sign that the tribulation has now given way to this great tribulation. And three and a half years of affliction and hardship will descend on the world. So how should the remnant of believers that are still here during this time period, how should they respond to this event to this person, to what Jesus refers to as the abomination of desolation. Well, notice the response. The response to the abomination of desolation. And look at Jesus' advice for how people should respond in verses 16 through 20. Starting in verse 16, Jesus says, Then let those who are, who are in Judea... And now you see the response. What are they to do? Flee to the mountains. Let whom who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those with nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Jesus says when the abomination of desolation occurs, the danger will be especially great for those living in and around Judea. You could somewhat call this God's evacuation plan for those who live in and near Jerusalem. It's like an emergency warning message from the weather service alert. Or tornado is coming. You need to flee. You need to take safety. And this is kind of God's way of saying that. Something similar is happening, in other words, in these verses. And Jesus' advice to these people is to flee to the mountains. Now... Stop and think about that just for a moment, because that's rather unusual advice. We just got through studying the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter, as you know, the last half of it especially is all about suffering, enduring persecution from a hostile world. And nowhere does Peter ever command us to run from the persecution. Rather, he encourages, he exhorts us to endure it. To stand fast. And yet Jesus at this moment is telling this remnant of believers who will be here at this time to flee to the mountains. The danger is so great that God's message here is hit the road fast and don't look back. During the siege of Jerusalem by Rome in A.D. 70, many Jews did in fact run and hide in the mountains, in the wilderness areas near Jerusalem. In fact, some of you may, are, may be familiar with the famous fortress at Masada uh, that was built in the first century B.C. by Herod the Great as an emergency refuge for he and his family. This fortress at Masada was used as a hiding place for a large community of Jews who fled the Roman armies in A.D. 66. After seven years of unsuccessfully assaulting that fortress, Rome's 10th legion completed a huge siege ramp on the western side of Masada. When the troops finally broke over the top, what they found was chilling. About 1,000 Jewish zealots had committed mass suicide rather than surrender to capture and abuse from the Romans. 
So even then, when Rome came and attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, Jews that were living in and around Jerusalem, even then ran and hid for the mountains. The urgency of this situation is pretty clear from what Jesus says in the rest of the verses here. The situation, he says, will be so horrific that when this abomination of desolation occurs, the people of God should flee without the slightest hesitation. Why? Because delay will be costly. Every second counts. In fact, it will be so horrific, Jesus said to pray it doesn't happen in bad weather. Pray it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. In other words, once the Antichrist takes over, the only hope will be to run for safety. So Jesus says the abomination of desolation is the sign that, in other words, will trigger this great tribulation, which leads us to our second question here this morning, and that is, well, how severe will all this be? We see the sign, but how severe will the great tribulation be? The 70th week of Daniel is known as the tribulation period before Jesus returns. We saw last week that the first half is called the beginning of sorrows, or the beginning of birth pains. In the second half, Jesus calls this great tribulation. So just how bad will it get? Just how bad will the tribulation be? Well, in verses 21 through 28, Jesus gives us a description of just how bad it will be. Notice, first of all, there will be worldwide calamity. Worldwide calamity. Jesus paints the picture in the darkest tones possible. Look what he says in verse 21. Then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. The final days before the return of Christ will be the greatest period of distress, calamity, catastrophe. You pick your word to describe it in world history. You can combine all the world's disasters holocausts, wars, earthquakes, you name it, and combine them all, and it will not equal the suffering of the great tribulation. As terrible as things have been in the past, and even what we have seen in the last century and even in just the last 20 years, the worst is yet to come. In fact, Jesus says in verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Think about that for a moment. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. It's only for the sake of the elect. That is, those true believers who come to faith during the last days, that the tribulation comes to an end. In fact, some scholars believe on those, on this, when, it, when Jesus says days were shortened, that literally 24-hour days could be shortened. That is, the, 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 there's less daylight time. Other scholars believe that that phrase may in, be in reference to the, the, uh, the, the tragedies, the calamity itself will be, be held back, if you will. So even in judgment, this is amazing, God displays his mercy. He still protects, he still delivers his children. So how bad will it be? Jesus reminds us there will be worldwide calamity. Number two, he says there will be widespread confusion. Widespread confusion. The last days of this age will be marked by enormous spiritual confusion and deception. Look what Jesus says in verses 23 and 25. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, 
do not believe it. Why? For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. In other words, what Jesus is reminding us here is that there will be an outbreak of false Christs and false prophets far beyond anything that has happened so far. And one reason why is these false messiahs will have satanic power to work great signs and great miracles and wonders. And these so-called miracles will be so convincing that even the elect are liable to be misled except for one thing. God sovereignly enables Christ's sheep to hear His voice and to distinguish it from the voice of false messiahs and false Christ and false prophets. So Jesus' warning seems to suggest that these false Christs and false prophets will actually even infiltrate the ranks of those who are fleeing from the Antichrist. Even in their exile from persecution, these refugees will constantly hear lying people claim, look, here's the Christ. Look, there he is. And so Jesus gives us this warning to the believers of that day in verse 26. Look what he says. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go. Or look, he is in the inner rooms. Don't believe it, Jesus says. So the question may come to our minds, well, how will anyone know when the true Christ finally appears? How will people know in that day? Not only unbelievers, but also even believers of that day. How will they know when the true Christ, how will they be able to distinguish his coming? Well, Jesus says in verse 27 that his return will be obvious to everyone. He says, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Revelation 1.7 adds, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye We'll see him. Now, here in the Midwest, we understand this. Man, when we have Midwestern storms and lightning's going everywhere, there's no mistaking it. It is visible to all of Kansas City. And Jesus says, that is how I will come again. Mark it down. Christ's coming will be no secret. It will be suddenly, it will be publicly, and gloriously He will return. And His coming will be visible to all, including unbelievers. Now, believers living in that day, let me tell you, they will rejoice. But the rest of Revelation, verse 7, adds this comment. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. In other words... The rest of the world will mourn because of the coming of Jesus Christ. You say, why is that? Because Christ's return will mean deliverance for believers of that day. But for the rest of the world, it will mean judgment. Which brings us to third. How bad will it be? There will be wide-ranging corruption. Wide-ranging corruption. Now, here's a verse you'll never see on a Christmas card. And I doubt you'll write it on a birthday card. Look what Jesus says in verse 28. For wherever the carcass is, there are the eagles. In fact, some of your translations may change the word eagles to vultures, which I believe is a better translation. 
So wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will be gathered together. Now, this statement was probably a Jewish proverb that was common in the first century. And even today, 2,000 years later, we understand the meaning of it. When you see vultures circling in the sky, it means one thing, right? And we understand what that means. A dead animal or a dead carcass of some sort, even a dead body, is rotting away and vultures are circling overhead. This verse pictures the unthinkable corruption and destruction at the end of the tribulation period. By the end of the tribulation, the spiritual decay of this world will make it like a lifeless carcass. It will be dead in a sense, the world. And when we say the world, it's talking about the unbelievers. And as it lies like a dead animal, Christ will appear and he will dispose of it in final judgment. This is the world the Antichrist will control. This is the world that is falling apart at the seams, even as the Antichrist gathers his armies for one massive assault on on the God of the universe. Now, it is fitting, I believe that our passage ends with this powerful image because the next few verses, as we're going to discover next Sunday, describe Christ coming to the earth in awesome power and in awesome glory. So don't miss the contrast here that Jesus is setting up for us for next Sunday. Today, we are seeing this great tribulation. We are seeing the corruption of mankind at the fullest and at its climax. When the world has become rotten with sin, let me tell you, Jesus will triumphantly return in his glory. Do you see the contrast now of that? Now, as we ponder the sign and the severity of this great tribulation, let me leave you with two principles to keep, keep in mind here. Two principles to keep in mind. The first principle is this. The present age will come to a climax in an outbreak of evil led by the Antichrist. This means that this present age in which we live is not evolving into a better world. I know people want to believe that. I know people think that. They dream of that. They hope it will happen. A better day. The world's getting better. People are intrinsically good. Folks, that is not true. Paul reminds us of this truth when he wrote in 2 Timothy 3.13, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, we will see evil people grow bolder in the last days as humanity throws off all restraints and moves toward the revelation of the Antichrist. So understand, this present age in which we live will come to a climax in an outbreak of evil who was led by the Antichrist. Now, here's the second principle to keep in mind. God allows the Antichrist to come onto the scene in order to show us the true nature of the human heart apart from his grace. So, first of all, I don't want you to think that the Antichrist is an aberration. You say, well, why do you say that? Because if you go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, the Apostle John reminds us that there are, quote, many antichrists in the world today. 
Two chapters later, in chapter 4, verse 3, Apostle John tells us that the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world today. They have been around since the beginning of time. The spirit of the Antichrist and many Antichrists have been preparing the way for the ultimate Antichrist who is to come during the Great Tribulation. And when he finally rises to power, let me tell you, it will be the culmination of secular humanism as people attempt once and for all to live apart from God, without God in their lives. Here is a man who truly represents the best that man can do on his own. The best that man can do apart from God, which is to do evil continually in his heart. Now, if you want a repeat of history... You have to go no further than back to Genesis chapter 6 and you will see that same thing happening all over again. When it grieved the heart of God and what he had created because man was so sinful and wicked. And then, of course, that's in Genesis chapter 6 and two chapters later in chapter 8, what do you have? You have the great flood, which was judgment on the earth. And now that will repeat And we will see the same thing again at the end of the age. It is a culmination. And when Christ comes, it will be in judgment of the world. So don't now. Now, let me just give one caveat here. Little warning for all of us here this morning. Because right now, it is so easy to think in our minds, man, I'm glad I won't be here. I'm a believer. And that Antichrist is one bad dude. I'm glad I'm not him. And we begin to separate ourselves from the Antichrist or what John calls the spirit of the Antichrist or many little Antichrists. Don't think for one moment that I or you are any better than the Antichrist or the spirits of the Antichrist. The only difference between any of us and the Antichrist is the work of God's grace to save us from ourselves. Listen, it is only by grace that we are saved from our sin and that we are saved from God's judgment on what we deserve because of our sin. People want to believe that things are getting better and better. Now, I will admit, and it is true, that the last century has seen enormous technological progress. We have seen tremendous progress in medical science in a lot of other areas of our world. But it is also true that more people died in more wars in the 20th century than in any other century. Or in, yes, in any other century. This just shows us we haven't really made any moral progress at all. Why? Because the human heart is still desperately wicked. The human heart is still in need of God's saving grace. The future reign of the Antichrist will show us just how evil man can become when he is completely cut off from the grace of God. You see, we need to ponder the fact this morning, have I cut myself off from the grace of God? Am I part of the spirit of the Antichrist that's in the world today? Because I have set myself against God and His grace working in my life. If that is the case, we're no different than what is yet to come during the Great Tribulation. Now, the question I want to ask 
after every message, at the end of every message, when we're talking about these things, is what difference does all this make for my life today? This is still yet future, and yet we're living in 2010. So what difference should all this make in how we live even this week and tomorrow when most of you go back to work or go back to school? Remember the events surrounding the second coming, the events of the tribulation, the great tribulation, the the events of the Antichrist, listen, are not for just our fascination, but for our what? Transformation. The Bible doesn't give us this information about the Antichrist to tickle our fancy or to stir up our curiosity. Rather, this truth is meant for our spiritual growth. So here's the question. How then should we live in light of the coming of the Antichrist and even in light of the spirit of the Antichrist that is already in the world today? How should we live? What difference should this make? And I would suggest to you, we need to be alert We need to be bold, and we need to live without fear until Jesus returns. Be alert. Listen, the last days will be a time of confusion, a time of spiritual deception. And it's already here. Don't be sucked in by the spirit of the Antichrist that is already in the world. Listen, that spirit, to give you just a brief glimpse, that spirit is what makes us think Sin isn't really serious in our lives. It is that spirit that makes us think, oh, a compromise here and a little compromise there, that's okay. Nobody cares and God's just going to look past it. No, that is not true. So be alert to the spirit of deception that is in the world today. Be bold as well. Listen, this is no time for silence. In times like these, we ought to be bold about our faith in Jesus Christ. We ought to be bold about our hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So speak up for Jesus. Let your voice be so loud and your voice be heard so loudly that no one can doubt whose side you are on. And then live without fear. Yes, the Antichrist is coming. But folks, listen to me. If we know the Lord... If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then we are joined by faith in Him with the one who is the ultimate victor. The Antichrist will come, but know that he will not have the last word. He will rise and then he will fall when Christ returns to set up his kingdom. So live in hope. Man, because in Christ we have great hope in the future. Do you know what this means? It means we can go back to the beginning of this message and we as believers can dream of a better tomorrow. We can dream of a better life. We can dream of a better future and a better day because it is coming for believers in Jesus Christ. We have great hope in the second coming. We have hope in that we know Jesus because we have put our faith and trust in him. Now let me end with this thought. In the end, the battle between Christ and the Antichrist is being fought right here in every heart. The day will come when every person must make a choice. Christ or the Antichrist. But that choice, listen to me, is no different than the choice we must make 
today. And so the question becomes, whose side are you on today? Will you stand with Jesus Christ? Or will you stand and side with the Antichrist? Listen, in the end, there is no other choice. Where do you stand even this morning? When you examine your own heart, your own life, where do you stand? Are you on the side of Jesus Christ now? Or are you on the side of the Antichrist? And if you think, I don't have to make that choice, I don't have to choose even now, then you're already on the wrong side. Listen, each one of us must decide which side we are on. And in the end, there is no room for neutrality. So I plead with you, I encourage you, examine your heart. Are you on the side of Jesus Christ, the one who is ultimately victorious over the Antichrist? With your heads bowed. And as we take a moment to ponder what we have heard this morning, a moment to respond to Jesus Christ. Listen, there's never been a better day to become a Christian. Why not come to Christ now? The Bible tells us that today can be the day of your salvation. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then let me encourage you to run to the cross and lay your sins on Him. Believe that He died for you and that He rose again. Trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then no matter what the future holds, you will have nothing to fear. In fact, right now you can pray to Christ. You can call up to Him and express your heart's desire in prayer. I want to pause and give you that opportunity even now. You can follow after me in a simple prayer. Lord, I, 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 I believe You. I want to come to You. I know I'm a sinner and I need the forgiveness that you offer. I believe you're the Son of God who came and died on the sins and paid the penalty for my sins. And I repent and I put my faith and trust in you and in you alone. And I invite you to come and live into my life and be my Savior and Lord. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me hope for today and also for all eternity. In your name, amen. Boy, if you prayed that prayer, I, I want to just encourage you to let me know. I'd love to, to talk with you, celebrate you, know that you have joined the family of God. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are sovereign over history, and your purpose will be fulfilled one day. Lord, help us to see the spirit of the Antichrist that is already in the world now, God, we ask you to strengthen our faith and to make us bold for Jesus Christ. Give us a spirit of encouragement. Give us a deep joy that comes from knowing you and that you are in control of all things. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. In your name, amen.